I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. It's no secret that our living spaces are getting smaller. As more and more of us move to urban areas, we're often having to put up with tight quarters, living in tiny flats with limited outdoor space. In fact, about one in eight British households has no garden at all. So in this episode, we want to explore how to maximise the space you do have, getting the best out of whatever garden, patio, porch or window box you can access. Because even the smallest of spaces has the potential to thrive as a green oasis. Award-winning garden designer Tony Woods will be giving us a front garden masterclass. I can walk up a street, I can see no hedges, loads of bins, lots of litter. Or I can walk up a street and I can see someone who's got some cuttings and they've put them out for them to help themselves to. I can see now kind of miniature libraries in boxes saying help yourself to a book or swap a book. We're then chatting with journalist and gardener Anne Treneman about creating fetching winter containers. The thing that I feel is that in the winter you, you're inside a lot and you don't get out and you certainly don't have the mega gardening sessions that you might have in the summer. So it is really satisfying to me to go out and have a pot with some plants that are really pretty or make me happy to look at. And finally, Fiona Davison, our Head of Libraries and Exhibitions, is back to tell the story of an early city gardener and what we can learn from his 18th century ideas. The longer you spend with historic documents and old books, the quicker you get to realise that um, there's nothing new. <laughs> We're kind of all struggling with the same things all the time. Just, just the language is a little bit different. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Gareth Richards. When I visit London, I love to wander long, meandering streets with the identical terrace houses. Each one has the same allotted space out front. But I'm always amazed to see how people can completely transform these little boxes that fall in between the house and the road, between the bricks and the asphalt. There's colourful rhododendrons, tumbling wisteria, fiery cornice, and even sometimes surprisingly large palm trees that have survived against all the odds. But I know when you find yourself with one of these spaces, it can seem incredibly daunting. Where on earth do you start? How do you create this verdant paradise to green the urban grey? Well, that's exactly the question that garden designer Tony Woods is here to answer. Small gardens just have a certain type of magic. You can sense someone's personality, you can sense where perhaps they've travelled to. People tend to have quite 
instinctive ideas of what they want in their garden and that could be a childhood memory it could be an adopted plant from their uncle or auntie who passed away and they feel that they've been given this responsibility to look after something so it's so impactful when you walk down a street and say it's in london and it's busy and there's traffic and there's pollution and you've got a big block of apartments or flats and you see one balcony where someone is just obsessed with growing plants or tomatoes or something and it just it makes you smile right so that is again another kind of magic of small gardens so if you've just moved into a, a new house or you've got a concrete covered front garden if you're renting and it's covered in concrete it's unlikely that you're going to be able to start and break up that concrete but what i'd say is for renters get the biggest containers that you can physically move or containers with wheels on them with as much soil in there as possible so the plants aren't as reliant on regular watering plants can develop if and when you you buy a property or you move to a house in i don't know five years even 10 years time if you've got a container with a really nice shrub in it or a tree you can just break that container off if it's root bound you can you know take it with you and every time you go out into your garden you're gonna have that memory with you right or you're gonna have this hopefully this nice um, plant but if you do own it and you've got a garden covered in concrete i would say break it up get rid of it or incorporate it so what I'm really loving about a lot of the briefs we get now as a client will say, take as little as possible out of this garden. Like we don't want to send it to landfill. We we don't want to kind of see it in a skip. If you can use it, we're more than happy for you to kind of cover it with plants, make it naturalistic, make sure that things look after themselves, that they can seed around. So I would say if you've got no money because you've you've bought a house you can get some seeds you can break up that ground you can start and sow things so sow annuals sow poppies so you know you can get really kind of basic mixes of seeds which you know in the short term will flower look great provide for pollinators so in a lot of circumstances it's about encouraging people to keep what they have so if they've got a tree that perhaps isn't the prettiest tree or the best shape it's still an established tree in a front garden in a street so it's doing some good if there is a hedge there a lot, a lot of people have kind of developed an obsession for ripping hedges out and replacing them with railings or walls because they're scared of the maintenance you know having to cut a hedge twice a year is this absolutely terrible thing you know we can sit on instagram for three hours a day but we can't cut a hedge for half an hour twice a year so it's about trying to get people to keep things that are already in their gardens in situ typically you'll have very shallow soil you'll have services running underneath so it's not ideal to be digging up and making big holes where potentially you could go through a gas pipe or telecoms or electric cables and there is a balance to be struck between what gives you privacy what looks good and what is also safe in an urban environment as well so in terms of my top plants for a front garden i would always kind of lean towards fewer but bigger plants so larger shrubs so rather than saying you know if i say small tree to someone they're like <gasps> you know so we're talking about a, a shrub that will easily be able to be kept kind of two meters that ticks all the boxes so it's got great leaf color it's got flowers it's perhaps got scent it's got fruit 
So in terms of urban gardens, Arbutus is an absolutely brilliant tree for a front garden. It's fairly pollution tolerant. You know, it's quite drought tolerant. When it's established, it creates good form, good shape, has really interesting fruit on it. And, it, you know, it's fairly low maintenance, doesn't really need to be pruned very often. But for anyone who is brave enough to plant something called a small tree, I would say the crab apples are just fantastic. They pretty much mind their own business. They don't get big, incredible blossom in the spring, really colorful fruit. Birds love it. You might want to use it yourself. Sorbus, another fantastic small tree, very kind of fine lacy leaves. So you can have planting underneath, really good autumn color, fantastic fruit. Not going to grow too big. You can prune it if you need to keep it in shape. So for those with a garden that does not have room for shrubs or bigger plants or small trees, some plants I think are just the most overlooked are alpines. So if you only have room for a bin store, you can put a green roof on it. So typically people go for a sedum roof. Some people go for a wildflower roof, which personally I don't think is the most sustainable option because they dry out very quickly. But if you create an alpine garden, either at ground level, in a trough, on a bin store, you don't need a huge amount of soil depth. And what you'll find is that things will seed into there. So if you've, if you've mulched that with some gravel or crushed brick, it's super low maintenance. Those plants will spread out and things like um, Louisia, are very colourful. They're like they're joyfully colourful. I think that's something that people are often afraid of, particularly in urban gardens. It doesn't have to be white and green, and if you like it, plant it. You know. So yes, yeah, sempervivum, clump forming, will survive the drought. Uh, Saxifraga is really kind of unfashionable, I guess, but I just think it performs so brilliantly well. Whether you've kind of made a hole in some concrete or whether you've planted it in an alpine garden, the flowers are so dainty. And at different levels, they just work so incredibly well. And it herbs as well. So mixing some herbs into alpines gives you a really good drought tolerant, useful, beautiful mix of plants. And, and those are absolutely ideal for a small front garden. Planting style from a design perspective often should suit the style of the property if you want it to just sit kind of effortlessly. So in terms of designing the front garden maintenance is going to be a big consideration and the amount of time that you can dedicate to that maintenance but again if, if you just grow one plant in a tiny front garden so i've seen people take out one paving stone next to their front door and plant one rose or one wisteria and spend 10 minutes a month perhaps training it or pruning it and pointing it in the right direction and that has huge impact and it covers the front of the house with greenery with flowers it's a talking point but it's that one plant and it's working really hard and it's paying for itself 10 times over and it's low maintenance so if you have a bigger front garden obviously some front gardens will have a lawn in them and again people want to remove a lawn because they see it as high maintenance but if you let that lawn just grow and cut a pathway through it or cut a circle in the middle it looks really cool it's great for pollination, it's great for habitat, it's low maintenance. And you can just change the style or change the vibe of a garden very easily by not doing very much or by doing less almost. So if you are going from more naturalistic style, 
it doesn't mean that you have to have a garden that's overrun with weeds or the definition of weeds. Okay, so we're thinking that if you I don't if you've got a retired neighbor who spends five hours on their front garden every day, and then you kind of move in and you're like, right, we're here for the wildflowers, we're here for the weeds. It, you know, in classic Britishness is you're you're going to be talked about at the local garden society, but ultimately you want to do the right thing and you want to grow something. Front gardens provide the opportunity to say, I care about living here. I care about this community. I care about the environment. And it spreads. People will see, actually, those guys that moved in over the road, they've made a really nice, simple planting scheme in their front garden. You know, if it's a row of lavender or whatever it is. And when people see one person doing that, it spreads down the street. And, you know, people really get on board with that. And it, you know, it can change crime rates. It can, you know, you can steer a local authority in the in the direction of what types of recycling bins you have in different towns. Lots of different things have happened. So, front gardens are they're almost like a, a health check for a community. It's saying these people are happy, they love living here, or perhaps you know this isn't the most tranquil environment, but wow, they try and they have a pride in their community and they want to make it greener and safer and cleaner. That was Tony Woods. Tony is Managing Director of Garden Club London and co-author of the book Big Ideas, Small Spaces. You can check out the link in our show notes. I really love Tony's quote there about people being scared of maintenance, you know, the fact that we'll quite happily sit on Instagram for three hours a day, but we're a little bit scared to cut a hedge for half an hour twice a year. It really speaks to the kind of times we live in and maybe some of the questions we need to be asking ourselves. And another thing that Tony mentioned, which was just lifting up one paving slab. If you can lift up one paving slab, plant a climber by your door, that will give you an amazing amount of garden, amazing amount of plant, greenery, amazing amount of benefit just for that few square feet of space. And it will make a big difference to your life. Every time you come home, you will see that plant. Your neighbours will see it. And of course, if the plant is in the ground rather than in the container, it's going to need less watering. It's going to be easier to care for in the long term. But containers really do have a place. They're so flexible, they're so useful. Even if you have to water them a bit more, they're still potentially a really attractive way to really quickly get plants into your garden. While Tony had a few tips on getting small trees planted in containers, we wanted to give you a few more options for potted displays with whimsical winter interest. So we're turning it over to garden designer and container fanatic, Anne Treneman, who's going to tell us some of her favourite ways to add a little joy to your garden in time for Christmas. What I really love about growing in containers is that you can, almost everyone can have a container. And when I was much younger, I lived in, you know, small, very small flats, and I always had my little herb container. And you, it's gardening. I consider it to be gardening. And... I love how different it can be. And now I've started to grow small trees in containers. I've really started to kind of embrace the idea because you can move them around. It gives you so much more sort of creativity and uh, options. You know, I think the absolute goal is to do an all-season container. It's much more sustainable to have a container that stays. You know, so you're not removing plants 
your, your, you know, the carbon is being sequestered, it's staying there. So in that way, you know, perennials, conifers, trees, shrubs, it's quite nice to have those in containers. And so, well, I used to have really mostly just flowers. I've really now changed it up and I have things that stay. And now what I'm trying to do even more is to have things that work really well in more than one season. So, you know, if you have the hostas in the summer that then die down and you have the ferns that come up, you can, you can put cyclamen in or you can put pansies in and that can brighten it up slightly. And it really kind of, I don't know, it just makes me feel very pleased to look at that kind of container. I also really love the whole winter season. You know, I feel like it's a celebration. There's obviously Christmas, but there's also winter solstice. There's Diwali, there's Hanukkah. They're all kind of lights and sparkly, I always think of them. So I think the three kinds of containers that you can choose from or do all three for sort of the winter season would be this would be what I would call a celebration container, which would be something that you could put lights on or you could put little sparkly bits on. Um, it would have some evergreen and also some color in it and really sort of bring joy to look at during the sort of winter festivals type season. My absolute ideal one would have a dwarf conifer. It would probably have some trailing variegated ivy and it would have cyclamen or pansies. And then they would have sort of a wild card of some kind, some kind of funny looking, you know, silvery leaved plant or a hoikara or maybe even like twisted hazel gives it some structure, more structure and kind of fun to do. So those, to me, there's that kind of pot. And then there is also a herb container. This is a pot that I have had my whole life. And I think that it is something that I would suggest for anyone who's a beginner gardener and not feeling terribly, you know, confident. This is a great thing to have because it is not only nice to look at, it's evergreen and it is something that you can have forever. What I put in that is rosemary, garden sage, thyme, and then I always like to mix it up with some edible flowers, so pansies are edible. Nasturtiums this time of year are fantastic. They don't obviously last past the first frost, but they're fun to have at this point. And you can you know, eat little seeds because they're kind of caper-like. And I just think it's an absolute great thing to go snip something off, come in, you know, and cook with it and just have it right there. It's very sustaining and I've, I just have always thought it was an absolute brilliant thing to have. And the third kind would be what I would call a winter flowering or scented containers. Now, it doesn't mean the other ones can't have flowers because they can, but this would be like the Daphne or something with a really strong scent like sweet box or Christmas box or Mahonia or even a winter flowering camellia. And I would also then also have probably a small fern because I love ferns and I would have small fern in anything. And so something like that, which is a different kind of, you know, it's not so structured, but it's, it's still lovely. You should have a larger pot so you can create your own little bit microclimate habitat in the pot. So their guidance is 19 inches, 48 cms which it gives you enough room to really experiment, which I like. But obviously that is, for people in very small spaces, that is not, you don't have to do that. You can have smaller ones, or you can have small pots that you group together. 
obviously frost-free is helpful, but you could always wrap in burlap and hope. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, we don't want to buy any new plastic, but you can always kind of tart up old plastic. You can wrap twine around it. You can put, you know, fabric around it. There's all things, sorts of things you can do. You know, peat-free compost, which I think is a given these days. And I think one of the things that I would definitely think about is location. I mean, my front porch happens to face north, which is not ideal. So I think that if you have some options and you have something that's a bit warmer or catches the sun in a better way, then that's a good place for a winter pot. One of the good things about pots in winters is you really don't have to feed them. So do not feed them because it won't help anyone, including the plants. The thing that I feel is that in the winter, you, you're inside a lot and you don't, get out and you certainly don't have the mega gardening sessions that you might have in the summer. So it is really satisfying to me to go out and have a pot or a trough with some plants that are really pretty or make me happy to look at. Or I can, you know, do little things with at Christmas I can put little stars on them or something. And I just feel that even going out for a short period of time tending them, making sure they're okay, making sure they haven't been, you know, tipped over or visited by a cat or something. <laughs> um, I just really like doing it. And it gives you a feel of gardening and it makes you feel as if you are still connected to the outdoors. Anne is currently writing an RHS book on greener gardening for containers, which is going to be out next spring, so we'll keep you posted. So Anne was focusing on containers with hardy things, but if you've got tender things like oranges or lemon trees or succulents, that kind of thing, now's the time to be thinking about where they live. It seems a bit distant at the moment with all this warm weather, but the risk of frost is increasing every day, particularly in the north. And so what you want to do if you've got citrus plants like oranges or lemons or you've got tender things like succulents, aeoniums, that kind of thing, bring them into a greenhouse or a conservatory if you've got one or a cool room, somewhere they can be protected from the frost over the winter. If it's something where the top growth will die back in the first frost like dahlias or cannas or even some of the bananas, you can cut them to the ground and wrap them up and then just put them in a garage or a shed for the winter. Now that over 80% of UK residents live in urban areas, we've seen an uptick in interest in urban gardening and gardening in small spaces in recent years. It might seem like a modern interest, like a challenge of the last 100 years or so, but if you look in the history books, there's a different story. In fact, fears over pollution and lack of access to green spaces stretch back hundreds of years, and the solution posed then still have resonance today. Fiona Davison, RHS Head of Libraries and Exhibitions, has been looking into someone from the 1700s who could be considered Britain's first city gardener, and she's here to share what she found. The earliest gardening book that we know of in English that concentrates on the challenges of city growing is actually this year 301 years old, so it's you know, a really long-standing kind of area of concern. And what's striking about it, it's called The City Gardener, the book, and it's by a man called Thomas Fairchild. 
who was a really interesting nursery owner from Hoxton in East London, which is now, you know, hip and trendy Hoxton. And it was in its own way, even 300 years ago, in gardening terms, hip and trendy, because Thomas Fairchild was a real innovator and had the latest, newest exotic plants and was really kind of cutting-edge gardener. But he was really focused on catering for a London clientele. So he captured everything he knew about growing in cities in this book, The City Gardener. So even 301 years ago, in 1722, London had already transformed into, I think it was by then, the second largest urban city in Western Europe, second only to Paris, and it was growing massively, rapidly. So it's kind of Georgian England and... We think that pollution and overcrowding are very modern kind of aspects of city life, but air pollution in London in 1722 was pretty horrible uh, because everything was coal-fired. They were bringing in what they called sea coal, and it was called sea coal not because it was the kind of coal you find on beaches, but because it came by sea from Newcastle. They were using uh, sea coal, which made really filthy black dust, and they were using it for everything from domestic heating, because they'd chopped down all the trees in southeast England by this point, through to industrial kind of practices. So there were lots of breweries and dye works and lots of small factories along the banks of the Thames. So London was pretty filthy. And in fact, some people believe that in terms of carbon dioxide, the air quality in London in the 1700s was as bad as it ever became. You know, it's never been worse. So it's not a new problem air quality and that really impacts on gardeners ability to grow plants you know it's really tough to grow plants when the air is filthy and plants really struggle so Thomas Fairchild had a real job on his hand to convince Londoners that they could garden and to help them find the plants and the techniques that they needed to kind of grow even in these really difficult circumstances. So he says in the book, I've made it my business to consult what plants will live even in the worst air of chimneys. And he lists a long list of plants that he personally has tried or seen growing around about London. Uh, So he's got Angelica, which I think we think of now as quite a kind of uh, modern architectural plant. But he says he's seen Angelica growing some of the worst parts of London. Mulberry trees, Fig trees, he describes fig trees growing even in the worst and dirtiest and most polluted tavern courtyards. And you don't get much worse than a dirty tavern. And he says beech trees, lilac, laburnum. He gives a long list of tough, hardy shrubs and trees, which we're probably quite familiar with now in urban settings. But even 300 years ago, they'd worked out, you know, that these plants could cope. Again, we think of roof gardens as being very modern, but he talks about seeing, I think, currant bushes growing even amongst the chimney tops that Londoners have found every little scrap of you know space they've got, backyards, courtyards, chimney tops, rooftops, window boxes, balconies. He talks about the Londoners' desperate desire for greenery and a reminder of country life and how as soon as the sun shines they're all rushing out to look after and be with their plants which is such a lovely image 
what's really interesting is if there's just a little shift of language you know he expresses himself a little bit differently than we would today but the, the same reasons that you know the RHS bangs on about a lot today around mental health and physical health and well-being um, he says whoever understands and loves a garden may have content if he wishes and he talks about city workers and, and merchants having a mind distracted and confined by being indoors all the time and being worried and stressed. And if they can get out into greenery, into the garden, they can achieve quiet of mind, which I think is such a lovely phrase. Um, but it's the same thing, that desire, that, that instinctive knowledge that we have, that being outdoors in green uh, spaces where you can get close to plants and close to nature, it's kind of good for you. The other benefit he points out of having gardens in a city environment, again, it's, you know, it's different language, but it's the same things we talk about today. He encourages people to, the city developers, the people who were uh, rapidly developing, particularly West London, and London was kind of growing westwards um, at the time, to build squares that their houses could be around, city squares. But he said, plant them as groves and wildernesses. And by wilderness, he didn't mean a wild place. He meant a densely packed collection of trees and shrubs. And the reason he said you do that is because it will you'll be able to escape into it and you'll be able to forget you're in the city at all. And it will be a haven for birds and wildlife and that that is a good thing in a London context, giving access to wildlife in this, even in the city. And, you know, so there's wildlife gardening just expressed in a different way that gardening has been an answer for lots of people and can continue to be an answer. I think that's quite inspiring. And I think it also helps you think about and I hope take notice of some of the really old planting in cities like London. You know, some of the trees that you kind of stroll by and under in London have been there hundreds of years and they've they're there for a reason. It's because they've served this human need for greenery, even in an urban space, for hundreds of years. And sometimes we, you know, we look at the old buildings and we look at the big monuments and things, but we kind of miss these amazing trees that have also been part of London for a long time. So, yeah, I think the book's relevant as a little eye-opener to that too. That was Fiona Davison. You can find out more about the Lindley Library's research on Thomas Fairchild in our show notes. On the topic of urban gardening, in case you haven't heard, the RHS is going to host its first urban show next April in Manchester. It'll be transporting the historic Depot Mayfield into an urban grower's paradise, and tickets are available now. So have a look on our show notes for details. Well, that's about it for today. But before you go, I wanted to share a few tips on what you can get up to in your garden this week. First off, if you've got any daffodil or crocus bulbs lying around, I know I definitely have, get them in. These early flowering things are desperate to put down some roots while the soil is still warm. The earlier you do it, the better your displays will be in the spring, so don't keep them waiting. Tulips, however, flower a bit later and absolutely fine to leave those for another month or so. While the weather's still mild, a lot of us will have tomatoes in our greenhouses. They're still going to be ripening. 
in my book, I would say leave some of the leaves on the plant. Leaves are where plants make sugar. If you chop them all off, your tomatoes aren't going to get that extra burst of sweetness. Take some of them off, let sunlight to the fruit, let a bit of air flow through, or help the plants fight off fungal infection, but just leave a few leaves on your tomatoes. And while you're in the greenhouse, think about sowing sweet peas. Over the next few weeks, it's a brilliant time to get a few pots of sweet peas going for over winter because then you will be able to spread out your sweet pea season. Everyone loves a sweet pea. I grow them in my greenhouse every year and last, last year I had them flowering by Easter. I was so grateful to have sweet peas in April. And also just a quick note, if you have a burning question you want answered on the show, we have a podcast email address where you can send your queries. It's simply podcast at rhs.org.uk. That's podcast at rhs.org.uk. That's all for now. So from me, Gareth Richards, goodbye. Thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.